Well, I'm going to attempt to do something today that's probably dumb, but I'm going to attempt to do it anyway. I'm going to preach on the whole book of Job, and that doesn't mean we're going to read all 42 chapters, okay? We don't have the time to do that, and you wouldn't get much out of it if I tried. I'm going to focus on just a few sections of Job, but I want, I want to be a good pastor and a good shepherd to you, and I want to invite you. This is an amazing book, and it has comforted millions of people, millions of people since it was written. And sometimes we get, it's, it's, it's dense Hebrew poetry in parts, and it's easy to get lost, but the very beginning of this book, and especially the very end, is so helpful, so comforting, so filled, chock full, and pregnant with deep theology that it's a, such a gift from God to us to help us weather suffering, to be filled with hope. The Bible says that Christians grieve, but we don't grieve as unbelievers grieve. We have hope. We're cast down, but we're not destroyed, as Paul said, right? We're burdened, but, but we have freedom and we have joy in the midst of that. And this book is a big part of why that's true. God has not left us wandering around blindly, groping in the dark to try and figure out what is going on. God gives us truth and he secures and stabilizes and anchors our heart with it. And so we're going to look at the book of Job today, but I want to invite you to go deeper and go further than we're able to in just the, the short time that we have together. So I've chosen chapter 42, but I don't want to start there. Uh, first, I want to just show you, as I try to do every week, where we're going to go. So three points today on suffering. Point number one, suffering is inescapable. Point two, suffering is unexplainable in some ways. And point three, ran out of room on that slide there, but you don't have to face suffering alone. So many people do, but you don't have to. God doesn't want you to. So point number one, uh, suffering is inescapable. And you know this, if you've been alive for very long, suffering is everywhere, isn't it? It's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. Nobody is spared suffering. Doesn't matter how rich you are, you can't bribe <laughs> suffering away, it's not gonna happen. Doesn't matter how old or young you are either, or what socioeconomic status you fit in, or what gender or race or country you live in, it doesn't matter. Because of the fall, we talked about that last week, that's the why question. Why is evil and suffering and heartache and affliction in the world because something happened in chapter 3 of Genesis that affected all of us. The fall of man, the rebellion against God, us groping for freedom on our own, trying to define goodness in our own terms instead of facing the wisdom that God had given us. And because of that, evil and suffering are everywhere. And it's unavoidable, it's inescapable, and eventually everyone comes face to face with some type of agonizing affliction. And a lot of the times, it's innocent people. And by innocent, I don't mean without sin, okay? I mean what the Bible says when it says that Job was blameless. He was above reproach. He feared God. He was a worshiper. He walked and followed God as closely as he could. He shunned evil. He worshiped. And we see that in, in just a litany of ways. There's innocent people who are obeying traffic laws, and yet they're killed in a tragic accident. Maybe a drunk driver crosses the line or somebody's texting and has a head-on collision. You know, before this sermon is over, five children in the world will have died by abuse and violence. Innocent children that had nothing to do to cause that affliction. By the end of this service, thousands of people will have died from cancer and traffic accidents. Again, innocent people who didn't bring that suffering on themselves or take unnecessary risks, just gone. And tens of thousands of people die every single day in unexpected tragedies, and they leave all the people around them 
just crushed with agony, hurt, disappointment, and confusion. But we hardly blink at those statistics because our, our world is so chock full of pain and misery. This broken, fallen world. Shakespeare wrote in Macbeth this line. He said, each new morn, new morning, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven in the face. That's true, isn't it? Every new morning, there's people that have lost a loved one or people that are facing suffering. Eventually, we will all face it or you will be very close to somebody who is going through just tragic affliction. Cancer, miscarriage, suicide, depression, abuse, divorce, betrayal, death of a child, darkness will come and it will find all of us. Even the innocents. And you think of 9-11, the two towers that fell. You know, there were, from what I've understood, a lot of Christians that worked in those buildings. And guess what? They did not escape suffering. Following Jesus doesn't make you immune to suffering and tragedy, regardless of what you hear. (laughs) Sandy Hook, a deranged person, walked into a classroom filled with first graders and shot everybody in there, including the teacher. Children, why? Why do things like that happen? What's the meaning? That's what's hard for us. That's what this sermon is really about, the mystery of suffering. Because listen, human beings, we can take a lot. We're resilient people. We can take a lot. We can take the suffering. What's hard for us is when we don't know why. Now, I get it. Sin entered the world, and with it, death and suffering and affliction and agony. But I want to know why I'm suffering, why this person that I care about is suffering. See, that gets to us. We can't handle that. We can't handle meaninglessness. And you see it even in the news. What do they say? This senseless tragedy. You hear that so often, you start to believe it. Okay, this really is senseless. This has no purpose, no meaning. It accomplishes nothing. And then the anger comes and the bitterness and the doubt and the suspicion. Okay, God, what's going on here? Are you on your throne or are you not on your throne? Who's sovereign, Satan or God or nobody? Is it as some secular people say, the universe is not hostile, it's indifferent? I'm not willing to accept that because the Bible I read doesn't give that story or scenario at all. But admit it, admit it. Don't you struggle with not knowing why. Lots of people do. When I was fresh out of seminary, one of the first calls that I got was from a member of our church and he said, Brother Tommy, I don't have anybody else's phone number, you're the first one that... I'm contacting my neighbor. Something bad went down over there. Uh, there a child got hurt or, or killed or something. Will, will you please come? They need a pastor. And I'm, man, I'm telling you, you can never prepare. Your, I'm fresh out of seminary. I'm ready, man. My cans are loaded with theology. Un- unleash me, Lord. And I pull up in this driveway and there's policemen there. There's paramedics there. There's a fire truck there. I'm thinking, what am I walking into here? And I walk in and this sweet young couple who live with their mother and their grandmother, their 15-month-old little girl didn't wake up from a nap. SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, 15 months. So I sat on the couch with them and I, I didn't know what else to do. We cried together. I held their hands, we cried. And you know what they said over and over? Why? 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 Just weeks before that, a friend of theirs had recommended, you know what? You know the little, if you're a parent, you know about this, the little uh, sensitive pads you can put underneath a pack and play or a crib. And if the child stops breathing, or if the clock ticks and it goes off, 
beep, 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 beep. And as a parent, you're like, man, that's going to keep me awake all night. I'm going to take that out. They're old enough. Somebody recommended, hey, 15, month, 15 months, they're past the safety. You know, the sudden infant death syndrome hardly ever happens to a child that old. So they removed it. And weeks later, that child stopped breathing and nobody knew. And they wanted to know why. What does this mean? Why? Why a child? And they're not the only ones. We see that all the time. I watched the documentary called The Witness. Now, I've used this story as an illustration before. Um, a 28-year-old single young lady named Kitty Genovese in 1964 was stabbed to death in Queens, New York at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night in March. It was cold. She screamed out. The crime took 33 minutes. And supposedly, 38 people either heard her screaming for help or watched her assailant stabbing her and raping her, and they didn't do anything to help her. Do you remember this story? It's in every psychological textbook, and it's called the bystander effect. It's about urban apathy. Why? We always think somebody else will help. So she died. And her brother, his name was... William Genovese, he was 16 years old when that happened. So this documentary called The Witness, it talks about how her brother almost went crazy trying to figure out why in the world could this happen? How could this happen? How could a human being like my sister, who was so caring and so loving, loved her neighbors, how could she die in her own blood and nobody go down to help her? It drove him crazy almost, so crazy in fact, he volunteered, I shouldn't say it that way because this is a noble thing to do. He volunteered to go to Vietnam because he thought, you know what? Everybody's standing by when suffering is happening. I'm not going to stand by. The world's at war. I'm going to help. And he lost both of his legs in a grenade accident. And then he came back. And then for the last four decades, this documentary chronicles, he's looking for purpose and meaning. Why did my sister have to die? He was unwilling to accept the fact that nobody responded to her cries. He is even ostracizing his family and creating conflict in his family. At one point, he's sitting at the dinner table crying with his brother who's saying, Bill, it's been 50 years. When are you going to be satisfied with your search? But that's what happens. We, get, we have to know the meaning. What does this mean? It can't be senseless. It has to mean something. And not only does it have to mean something, I have to know what it is. I need answers because we're human beings and that's how we are. We got to figure things out. We can't settle for living in ignorance or in indifference. I got a few stories today because I want you to, I don't want this to just be theoretical in a lecture. This beautiful Christian girl, her name was Heidi Ritchie. She died in July 25th, 2000. Sweet girl, Christian girl was just about to finish her college education and was going to go to the mission field. Her parents were strong believers in a church and leaders in, in the community that, that I live near. And she was on a college agricultural trip her last year of college up north. And she was in a cornfield in her car. And she was driving through the middle of the field, a dirt field that hardly anybody would even drive on. She, she was going through a, an intersection. She didn't have a stop sign. And out of nowhere, this dump truck ran a stop sign, hit her, killed her instantly. Killed her instantly. And her parents, obviously, stricken with, with grief. Strong Christian leaders, but you know what they wanted to know? Why? 
Did you get the right one, God? She was going to the mission field. She loved you. She sang. She created music. She was friendly. And they got in their car and they drove up north to that field where that happened. And they sat in their car at the intersection where their daughter was killed for hours, for hours. And they held hands and they cried and they prayed and they reflected. And here's what's interesting about that. I don't know how many hours they were there, several hours. During the time they were there, not one vehicle came to that intersection or came through that intersection. I don't know how mathematically savvy you guys are, but for somebody to have a, a collision at an intersection, you know, the split second it would take for the stars to line up for that to happen in an abandoned cornfield up north. And they sat there and they cried and they said, why? Why our daughter? Why now? Why this? And they're not alone because a lot of people think that. See, whenever, whenever we hear of a tragedy, we, something psychological happens, we think, well, that had never happened to me. One person who wrote about it said this. Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death. And, and you, can, you can testify to this in your heart. If you hear about a tragedy or see a documentary about somebody that died, this is what happens. When we hear of a tragedy, there's a deep-seated psychological defense mechanism that goes to work. We think to ourselves that such things happen to other people, to poor people, or to people who do not take precautions. Or we tell ourselves that if only we get the right people into office and get our social systems right, nothing like this will happen again. He's right, isn't he? Isn't he? And we also say this, we know that happened to them because we all know there's something underneath the surface. They're not really serving God. They're not really, they're not really faithful and true to God. Sarah and I watched a, uh, a documentary the other night. Maybe you've heard of this story. It's a lady... Her name is Karen Tippetts, and she married a church planner. And a lot of similarities between their family and ours. They met in a high school. Uh, they have four young children. Um, they're young. She takes really good care of herself, and she was diagnosed with aggressive form of breast cancer. And the name of the story is The Long Goodbye because it took her three years to pass away. She's trying to prepare her family. She wrote two books. And we're watching this and we're thinking, man, she ran, she exercised, she was a vegan for like seven years, and still the cancer came. And her husband's a theologian. He's an amazing church planner. And the cameras are following him around. And at one point in the documentary, just weeks before she passed away, he's in tears, he's in his car, and he says, I do not know why this is happening to our family. And I just appreciated his candidacy. Of course he doesn't know. Nobody does. Even and especially the people that pretend to know. They don't know either. That's the mystery of suffering. We want to know why. We want answers. But the Bible doesn't always give us the answers that, that we want. And that brings us to the most famous story of suffering, a man named Job. Now I'm making a massive assumption here. Is that most of you, hopefully all of you, know just a little bit about the story of Job. It's not Job, it's Job, Okay. His story is amazing. The Bible opens up by saying, there was a man who lived in the land of us whose name was Job, and he was righteous, he feared God, he shunned evil, he had integrity, he was upright, he was a good man, and he was very wealthy, and he was blessed by God. He had seven sons, he had three daughters, he had thousands of sheep and camel and oxen, servants, houses. This guy had it all, and it says he was the greatest man in the East, so his, he was renowned, he was powerful, he was wealthy. 
And unbeknownst to him, in the courtroom of heaven, this scenario played out. All the angels are reporting to God, and then Satan walks up to God. Which I I love the way this story plays out because it shows God is sovereign over demons, over angels, over all of his creation. And it says that Satan walked up to God and God said, what are you doing? Where Where are you coming from? And he says, oh, I've been walking to and fro throughout the whole earth. And we put the New Testament with that. And what was Satan doing walking all over the earth? What was he doing? Like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. He's looking to cause trouble. In fact, the word Satan, it means an opposer. It's it's more of a title than a personal name. God's in heaven and the opposer walks up and he says, where have you been? He says, I'm looking to cause trouble. And here's what's really interesting. You know what God says? He says, well, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on all the earth. He's blameless. He fears me. He's upright. He has integrity. And you know what Satan says? He says, yeah, I know all about him. There's a big hedge all around his life. And he doesn't mean bushes, okay? He means, I know about him. I can't get at him. You've protected him. I can't afflict him. I can't torment him and oppress him. And then Satan says this. He says, but I want you to know this. Job's not serving you. He's not really your servant. He's not serving you. He's using you. He's using you. He's a parasite, Job is. He's a leech. See, he only worships you because you bless him. Take all of that away and he'll curse you to your face. Now, Job never knows any of this is going on. Ever. He never knows. As far as I know, he still doesn't know. We know. We get the God's eye view. That's why this book is so powerful. Because we get this hidden, rich, pregnant insight into sometimes why suffering happens. That it always has meaning, even if we don't know what it is. So God says, have you considered my servant? And Satan says, yeah, I know all about him and I wish I could get at him. And God says, have at it. You may go this far and no further. Spare his life. So you know what, you know what Satan does? You remember the story? Satan takes everything from him. All his wealth, all his animals, his crops. And then eventually he takes all of his children. They're all together in one house. And this storm, this mighty windstorm comes and blows down the, collapse, the house. It collapses and all of his children die. Remember the story, right? It's an amazing story. And it's true. It's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. It's not a fable or a parable. This is a true story. And Job is in agony like any of us would be. It's, it's, it's painful enough to lose one child, let alone all ten on the same day. And by the way, all that tragedy happened the same day. One servant came and said, you've lost your sheep. Another servant came, you've lost your servants, you lost your crops, and then eventually you've lost all your children. And the Bible says that Job fell down on his face. He tore his clothes. He took a razor and ran it over his head, cut his hair, and he cried out, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I want to tell you this, I want to hit the pause button for a minute, because I think so often what people try to do when suffering hits is the first thing, there's this ship, okay, of your life, suffering happens, and you're sinking, and you think, I got to go, I got to throw something overboard and lighten this load. You know what the first thing that most people throw overboard is? 
God's sovereignty and his control and his authority. They say, well, I know this. God had nothing to do with this. And they throw that overboard. The one thing that would have stabilized and anchored their boat, the ballast, they throw it overboard, thinking it will lighten the load. And you know what it does? It actually sinks the ship. And if you read carefully enough, that's not what Job does. Can you guys see this? I could preach the rest of this message on this verse right here. Let me read this to you. This is Job's response. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and Satan has taken away. Is that what he said? No. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you're like, yeah, well, we know Satan. He he got that wrong because it was the devil. No, no, no. Check this out. In all of this, everything he just said, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Amazing. You would think, well, you're wrong, Job. God didn't do that. The devil did. But it says right here, nope, what Job said was accurate. And if you missed it that time, he says it again because a little bit later when Satan comes back to God, because Job didn't curse God, right? He's still serving God. Satan comes back and he... Same scenario. And God says, have you considered my servant Job, who still holds fast to his integrity, even after you incited me to destroy him? And Job says, yeah, but skin for skin, afflict him, take his health away, and then he'll curse you to your your face. So guess what? The devil strikes Job with these painful sores all over his body, from the crown of his feet to the head of, from from his feet to his head, okay? I mean, you can imagine these oozing, bloody, gory sores with pus coming out. It says that Job sat on an ash heap and he broke some pottery and he was scraping and lancing his sores to to give some relief to himself. And his wife said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? That was his wife's advice. This is what Job said. His wife said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. See, Job was smart. He didn't say you're a foolish woman. He said you're speaking like a foolish woman. Big difference. (laughs) That could be another sermon, guys. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Man, that just throws a monkey wrench in people's theology, doesn't it? But that was the devil. That wasn't God. But check this out. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Guys, learn this lesson. That is a good declaration. Because Job is saying, I don't know why this is happening, but I know this. God is in control of all of this. And there's some mysterious hidden meaning behind all of it. But God did not relinquish his control or his government of the universe. God either brought this on himself or he allowed it to happen. It It had to get his okay. And that's good theology. Don't throw that overboard. Your ship will definitely sink if you throw that overboard. Job didn't. That's a great declaration. So that is the first point, okay, is that suffering is inescapable. And here's the second point. Suffering is unexplainable. It's unexplainable. We try. We try to do that, and we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Because, listen, we all want comfort, God made us to get comfort from people. And Job is in agony here. You've already heard the comfort his wife gave him. 
don't you just go ahead and do it. Curse God and die. Maybe he'll kill you and put you out of your misery. But you know what? Something else happened. Job had three friends. And they heard about his suffering. And they planned together to come and comfort him from a long way off. And they came and the Bible says that they sat with Job for seven days and didn't say a word. Because they saw how great his misery and his affliction was. They sat with him and they wept. And that was amazing. That was the greatest thing they could have done. Because we're made in God's image. It's not good for man or woman to be alone. And especially when we're in misery, we need fellowship and we need community. And Job received that from his friends. And they did awesome until they opened their mouth. And started trying to counsel Job and comfort Job. And man, did they tear him to pieces. One of the first things that his friend Eliphaz, the Temanite, said was this. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? <laughs> first thing he said. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, Job, what'd you do? What'd you do, my friend? Your sin and your iniquity must be great. Your guilt must be terrible. What orphan knocked on your door? His three friends for like 31 chapters play out all of these scenarios, hypothetically. You lusted, Job. You committed adultery on your wife, Job. You're stealing, Job. What'd you do, Job? What'd you do? They gave all these platitudes and, and empty comforts to him. And eventually he says this. He said, you are all miserable comforters, all of you. And I wish you would take your packages of God and go away. Because that's what, we, human beings, we can't, we don't like mystery. You know, we, we want, oh, okay, I know why this is happening. This is why this is happening. We do that. And here's another lesson. It's not really part of the point, but I want to make this point. Bad theology hurts people. And bad theology will destroy people who are suffering. Man, you've got to be careful what you say to somebody that's suffering. Number one, <laughs> if you think they want a sermon or need a sermon... Man, be careful. You need to bring truth, but first you need to bring tears. The Bible says, weep with those who weep. But Job's friends, for 31 chapters, man, they just rank him over the coals. Job was doing okay until they brought their bad theology. And we do that sometimes. Somebody that's suffering, and we, we may not even say it, but we think it. What did they do? What secret sin have they not confessed? See, human beings are complex people. We think we have all the answers. Sometimes suffering may not even be spiritual. Because, you know, we're not just spiritual beings, we're physical. There's a story in the Old Testament about a man named Elijah. And he was depressed. And he was suicidal. He lay down under a tree in the wilderness. He's running for his life. And he said, enough, just kill me, God. And God sent his angel. The angel of the Lord came and showed up. And, and here's what's amazing. Here's what the angel of the Lord did for, for Elijah. He woke him up and he said, the journey's too much for you. You need to eat and you need to sleep. What? That was the comfort he gave? Yep, that was it. He said, you know what? You need a nap and you're hungry. See, sometimes people need to go walk on the beach and need to take a nap. <laughs> sometimes they don't need a sermon. They need to rest. We're physical and we're spiritual. And, and, and here's something else. We're not just personal, we're relational. Sometimes people really do need a hug. They need physical human contact. They need somebody just to cry with them. They don't need a pill and they don't need a sermon. And I'm not discounting organic depression and things that happen that medicine can help with. 
I'm just saying, we, those are the two extremes. Throw a lecture at somebody or accuse them of sin or, or throw a pill at them. Sometimes it's, it's deeper than that. We're complex people. Job's friends, well-intended but misled, deeply hurt Job. They spewed some really bad theology. I think I have a slide, something that they said. Yeah, the, the, very, one of the, the very last chapter in Job, this is what's so amazing. Job's friends came, high and mighty, all spiritual. They had all this figured out. And for 31 chapters, they accused Job of sin. And this is how God responds at the very end. Check this out. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now this is what's so astonishing about that. You would think that God says, you have not spoken right things about Job. In other words, you slandered Job and you, and you accused him wrongly. But that's not what God says, even though it's true. Job was innocent. There was nothing he did to bring that suffering on him. But what God says here is deeper than that and more electric than that. Because he said, you slandered me. <laughs> Look at that. You have not spoken of me what is right. For 31 chapters, you've been spewing out toxic theology. And you've hurt Job deeply. And it's interesting... <laughs> We don't have time to look at all this, but you know, you know what God said? He said, now you're going to ask Job to pray for you. <laughs> I love that. He says, I'll forgive you, but here's what I want you to do. Go ask Job to forgive you and to pray for you, and I'll hear his prayer. My servant Job. He spoke of me what was right. You guys were so far off, so far off the ranch. So suffering is unexplainable. It's, you know platitudes and advice out of your back pocket, those are not helpful to people. That hurts people. Maybe you have been hurt. I don't, I don't want to ask, but if you would raise your hand, if you have been hurt by bad theology when you were in agony, I bet the whole room would have a hand in the air. Or if we were really candid and really honest, if we were really secure in the gospel today, and I would say, how many people have hurt somebody else with bad theology? My hand would be in the air first because I've said some really dumb things to people, really dumb things. I went on tour to, that sounds vain. I was with a Christian band that asked me to accompany them and speak at their concert. Small band, small, not big at all. But we went to New York City after 9-11. Man, I said some of the, and, and I was all about God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. I said some really dumb, hurtful things that confused people. Instead of crying with them, I was trying to give them answers. I was saying things like, the Bible says if calamity befalls a city, has not the Lord done it? That's true, but that's not especially helpful right after two twin towers collapse and kill thousands of people, you know? But anyway, I've hurt people with bad theology. Maybe you have too, and I've been hurt by bad theology. And it's terrible, it's painful, it's agonizing. Job is, he's hurting here. He says things like this. I feel like God is killing me. I feel like God is destroying me. I feel like God is against me. Here's a quote. Job says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. My pain weighs more than all the sands of the sea. See, Job is amazing because not only do we ask the question, why am I suffering? Another question we ask is, how do I get through it? And Job helps us with both of those because you can read things in the book of Job and you would think, how in the world can a human being talk to God like that? How can Job get away 
with saying some of the things about God that he said. At one point he says, I wish you would let me swallow my spit, which means die, and go away and turn your face away from me and leave me alone, God. You've done enough here. Thank you very much. I'm paraphrasing. This is the, you know, Tommy Clayton version. But that's basically what Job says. And we're like, oh, goodness, you can't talk to God like that. Job did. And here's the difference, okay? It would be one thing for you to talk about God like that. It's something quite different when you talk to God like that. The whole book of Job is Job wrestling with God. He is, you almost feel like you're invading somebody's private prayer journal when you read this book. Because he's like Jacob, he's wrestling with the Lord. He's taking his complaints to God. He's begging God, I wish that I could just talk to you face to face. I wish I could have you in a court of law and we could sit down and you could read me my Miranda rights and tell me why this is happening. I just love that about Job. He felt secure enough in his relationship to God that he could be honest. I mean, if you're angry at God, you might as well tell him he already knows, right? I'm not saying be irreverent. I'm saying God knows all things. God's not going to go, how could you? The Bible says in Psalm 139, he knows your thoughts before you even speak them. That's comforting to me. I can be honest and transparent and open with God in a way that I can't be with other people. So this is the how question. How do you get through suffering? Job shows us the path through. You don't go around it. You go through it with God, with God, with his help. That's what's going on here. So God gets Job's attention and he gets our attention, really. That's what so often, uh, so often that's what pain is. C.S. Lewis said it like this. We can ignore even pleasure. We can ignore pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Did you know that? Pain says God is doing something beautiful and mysterious and amazing he is is drawing you closer to himself that's what happened at at the end of this book job is closer to god than he's ever been one man said it like this job's story creates a space for us to honestly bring our pain and grief to god and to trust that he cares realizing that he knows exactly what he's doing This whole book shows us, look, take your pain, take your agony, take your suffering to God. That's what we need to do. So I know that I'm running out of time here, and the greatest point of all is what God does to Job. I was telling telling my wife this week, if if you've read the story of Job, you know that Job is complaining, Job is in agony, Job is talking to God like you would your closest friend, and he's saying, I wish I could see you face to face, and eventually, do you know what happens? God grants Job his wish. God shows up, and he shows up in like a category five tornado, and the Bible says, in a great whirlwind, a great windstorm, God spoke to Job, and it's amazing because you would think, okay, the whole... The whole thing of this complaint with Job is he wants to know why. Why, God? Why did this happen to me? And you think, okay, God finally shows up and he says, look, be quiet. You don't understand. It's like this. Satan came to me and we had this battle and he accused you and said you weren't really serving me. You were using me. So I let him. God doesn't say any of that. 
If you didn't know the book of Job, you would expect that. You would expect that, okay, God's going to take Job to the academic university and he's going to explain the problem of evil and existential crises and anxiety, or he's going to take him to a philosophy class and talk about anthropology and mysterious man. He doesn't. God doesn't do any of those things. Do you know what God does? Have you read the last few chapters of Job? Chapters 38 through 41. God shows up and he takes Job on like a virtual tour of the universe he created. And it's one of the most amazing things you'll ever see in your life. And here's what's crazy about it. When God is done, when he's finished with Job, he asked Job, Job's been asking all these questions. And God asked 84 questions of Job that he doesn't answer. He's flabbergasted. He's stunned. He's thunderstruck. He's speechless. And I would never do to somebody suffering what God does to Job. I, I couldn't do that. Only God can do that. We shouldn't ever do that. Only God can do it, right? But here's what's interesting. When God is finished, it worked. <laughs> it worked. Job's a changed man. He's been transformed. You, you heard Colleen read the passage earlier. Job says, look, I was an idiot. I was talking about things that are too mysterious and too marvelous, too wonderful for me. I despise myself and, and dust and ashes. And now I'm finally comforted. That's what Job says. In fact, the reason that we read Psalm 131 earlier, let me go back a little bit. Check this out. This, is, this blew me away when I found this. Let me geek out on you a little bit here, okay? Psalm 131 is one of the shortest Psalms in the Bible, and it's King David, and he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Do you know that in Hebrew, which is what the New Testament was primarily written in, like 99% of it, the word marvelous is the exact same word in Hebrew that Job used in chapter 42 when he says, I was, I was probing where I didn't have any business probing, God. These things are too mysterious and too marvelous for me. They're too wonderful. They're beyond me. These things are beyond me, and you have shown me I don't understand the mysteries of the universe. You do. You do. There's knowledge and wisdom and power and sovereignty that you possess that I'm not privy to. I don't belong there. It's too deep for me. It's the same word. I think David read, obviously he loved the word of God. I think he read the book of Job and he's reflecting on, I'm like Job. I'm like, you know, part of this Psalm says, I'm like a, a child who's been weaned and has, and has cradled in her, in her mother's arms. You know, a child that needs milk, for those of you that know, and this is kind of confusing because there's another analogy that says, uh, as a baby, as a newborn babe craves milk, so I crave the milk of the word, which is a good thing. But Job is saying sometimes babies that nurse on, on their mother's milk, they're fussy, they're demanding, they're inconsolable. They have to have it. Give it to me now, 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 right? David is saying these things that are beyond me, I'm like a weaned child. I'm good. I'm with my mom. I don't have to have the milk right now. I'm weaned. It's just enough comfort to know I'm with my mom. That's one of the only places in the Bible where there's like this feminine, uh, beautiful picture of how God is tender with us and gentle with us and nourishes us. And that's what happened to Job. He's not clamoring for answers anymore. God showed up, took Job on this amazing virtual tour of the universe and asked him questions like, again, not questions we would ask. He says, Job, let me ask you a question. Where were you at when I created the world? Were you there? <laughs> Did you help me measure it out and lay the pillars and the foundation? 
Now again, only God can do this. I would never do this to a mother or father grieving their son's loss, right? But God really needed to put Job in his place. And then he takes him all around. He's like, do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? <laughs> do you, can you draw out the constellations in the fall? What about the eagle? Did you, did you aerodynamically create the wings of the eagle so that it could soar? He's taking Job into all these places. And here's what's interesting. He's showing Job things that Job already knew about. Job knew about eagles and mountain goats and constellations. And, but he's showing Job even the things you think you know you don't know. <laughs> so how in the world, if I explain to you why you're suffering, are you going to be able to handle it? It'll kill you. It'll kill you. <laughs> You'll die. You can't handle it. It's beyond you, Job. It's beyond you. I love you too much to even try to explain this to you. You're just going to have to trust me that there is a very good reason. See, Job was accusing God of neglecting him. He's like, you're neglecting me. You're not paying attention. Maybe you were on your throne, but you were turned aside and you were busy and distracted when I suffered. And God says, Job, you don't get it. You don't get it. The mountain goats giving birth and thousands of contingencies going on in the universe at the same time. I'm controlling all of those things. There's not one random rogue maverick molecule that's outside of my sovereign sphere of control. He shows him all these things. And then, and then he shows him these two massive, incredible beasts. I love this part of Job. Two animals called behemoth and leviathan. He's like, Job, have you ever seen these creatures I made? They're pretty, they're, they're dangerous, they're raw, they're deadly. You try to cross one of them, they'll bite your head off. You can't even get close to one of them. And God says, I made them. I made them, me. I'm the author, I'm the creator. So as fearful and, and struck with all that you are of those beasts, and by the way, of your suffering, I want you to be in awe of me that way. Because I created those things. And, and I'm the one behind the meaning of your, of your suffering, Job. See, you're overwhelmed with wanting to know the answers. I want you to be overwhelmed with me. And that's what God gave Job. He didn't give him answers. He gave him himself. He gave him more of himself. And you know what? It was enough. Job was like a weaned child. He's like, God, enough. I didn't know what I was talking about. Now, I got to close here. And hopefully I can do this the right way. The last point was, uh, what was the last point is you don't have to face it alone. And that's essentially what I've just told you. Job faced suffering virtually alone. His three friends were miserable comforters. His wife told him to curse God and die. His wife said it's God's fault. His friends said it's your fault. And then Job finally gets a face-to-face -face with God and God says, you don't understand, Job. You don't understand. And then at the very end of the book, this is what's really amazing. Now, track with me here, okay? We're going to put our scuba gear on just for a minute. In Job chapter 42... Um, let me read this to you. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. In other words, you have not comforted him. You have misled him. You have hurt him. And that's why in chapter 42 earlier, Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me which i did not know and in verse 5 he says i had heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you therefore i despise myself and i repent in dust and ashes now this is totally a picture of repentance 
Not because Job did something that caused his suffering. He didn't. But because Job regrets the things that he said about God. He, regret, he knows, I said that rashly, and God understands because I was in agony. But here's what's interesting about this. This word, repent, here in Hebrew. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. I've looked at this, and I think a better translation of this word is actually comfort. Job is saying to God, I feel terrible about what I said, but I'm really happy and comforted about what I heard from you. My friends were miserable comforters, but you have truly comforted me. And here's why, because in Job 16, he says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Windy words, he's saying you're, you're, you're spewing out sweet nothings. This is all empty. But that word right there, miserable comforters, that's the same exact word in Hebrew that Job says in chapter 42. When he says, I repent in dust and ashes, I believe he's saying, I'm finally comforting myself with what God said. Because his friends couldn't comfort him, his wife couldn't comfort him. Only God could truly bring comfort to Job. And that's what this, I, I believe the whole story is about, Job finding comfort. Now listen, we're, we're about to celebrate communion, and, and I want you to know that Job points us to the, to the true innocent sufferer, Okay. You know, the first thing that Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, said, he said, whoever suffers who was innocent? Only one person. Only one. There was only one truly innocent person. You know, Job said, I feel, I feel like the arrows of the Almighty are shot into me, and I'm drinking in their poison, and I feel like God is destroying me, and he's cutting me off. He's, God is cutting me off. That's right, Job. You feel like that, but we all see that's not really what happened. But there was a person who was shot full of God's arrows of wrath. And the poison destroyed him, right? He was truly cut off. Job points us to the greater sufferer who was truly innocent and was actually doing it in your place and in my place, the true substitute. And listen, I know that we all want meaning in suffering. We want to know what it does. We want to know what it means. I, I will tell you this. I do not know what your suffering means, and neither do you. You may never know. But we know what it can't mean because of Christ. If you are in Christ, your suffering and your agony cannot mean that God does not love you because the cross dispels that lie forever. God loves us and he gave himself for us. And here's the greatest truth. What's the greatest suffering we've ever seen in the history of the world? Wasn't it Jesus who was truly innocent, right? And listen to the meaning of Jesus' suffering. If you can't get satisfaction being in the mystery of why you suffer, perhaps this will help you. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that. In Greek, that is a clause that means for the purpose of. Christ suffered. Why? What's the meaning behind Christ's suffering? So that he might bring us to God. Man, that's deep. That's deep. You may not know why you suffer, but I will tell you this, my friends. We know why Christ suffered. And man, was it a noble cause. He suffered to bring us to God so that we would never have to suffer alone, ever. That's the great. I'm satisfied knowing that. That doesn't mean that when my day of suffering comes, I'm not in agony or I don't have a dialogue with God the way Job did, but it means I have more information available to me than Job ever did. All Job knew was, hey, I know my Redeemer lives, and one day I'm going to stand before him, and this flesh is going to be renewed, and I'm going to be like him. He knew the, the, 
the obscure hope of the Messiah. We know the full picture, right? It's beautiful. Is God getting your attention with suffering? When he does, just remember the cross. Let's pray together and uh, let's do that now. Lord, thank you so much for this truth that there is meaning in all of our sufferings, but we may not know what that is. When there's chastening, I believe you want us to know. We're your children. When we chasten and discipline our children, we want them to know why they're being chastened, and I believe you do too. But not every act of suffering is chastening by you, Lord. It's sometimes so mysterious we can't know, but it gets our attention and it drives us closer to you and it takes us back to the cross where we find true meaning in your suffering so that you might bring us to you. We thank you for that. And we ask that you would be with us as we celebrate communion together. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.